The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu.
place. But I will use an illustration out of the scripture to show that this is not merely a sort of an abstract academic discussion. Because when we come to 1 John, we are told something very expressive and something that always moves me very deeply and I feel is crucial in the understanding of the whole attitude of the uh, men toward the Bible and the whole attitude toward man as on the biblical basis toward that which is quote unquote spiritual. And it's in the area where the Bible is telling us how we can test the spirits and how we can test the prophets. Now, if a spirit comes to your room tonight when you're asleep and knocks on your door and the spirit knocks on your door how are you going to know whether the spirit is from God or whether the spirit is not from God and the same is true with a prophet when he comes to you in a spoken or written word how are you going to tell if the spirit or the prophet is from God or is from man and the Bible gives us only one test and the test interestingly enough is totally in the area of reason and that is, on the use of that which reason can deal with, we are to ask the Spirit a question. And the question is, has Jesus come in the flesh? Now this is, a, this is something, this is a very nice question indeed, because it carries with it not one part, but two. First of all, has Jesus had a pre-existence before he came in the virgin birth? And then secondly, did he come? So here is a very, a very nice test, a very a test that has great delicacy. But notice that this test is to be applied on the basis of reason, of really demanding of the Spirit when that Spirit knocks on your door, and that is, what about the doctrine that you bring? What about the doctrine you bring? I would just say we have much contact with the demonic and much contact with the cult in La as kids come from all over the world who have gone often from the drug thing to the Eastern religious thing to the occult to the demonic. Uh, and this is very real. This is very real. And you must lay there, the Bible lays down something. And that is the much more, in quotation marks, that is our emotional response in this particular case, or what I could call uh, the spiritual boom, uh, is no proof whatsoever whether the Spirit is from God or not. And when you deal with people, as we deal with them very often, who really have been deep in the demonic, you very rapidly learn that those who are in contact with the demonic have a tremendous, in quotation marks, spiritual, spiritual boom. But it is no test according to the word of God. The much more, in quotation marks, is not the test. The test is that in the area of the reason, the area of the, what we can call the intellect, the area with which reason can deal. Now, that's the end of the first point. And moving on and applying that. Let us apply that then, therefore, into the area of contact to the question raised by general revelation. Now, most of you know that traditionally we divide a revelation of God into general revelation, special revelation, special revelation being two, the verbalized propositional communication of God from man to man in the Bible, and secondly, the revelation of God in Jesus Christ, special revelation. The general revelation can be divided also into two, and that is the universe, that is the, the existence of the universe, and its form, and there's two parts to this. The universe is there, and it has a form, and you can think of Jean-Paul Sartre's basic statement, a brilliant statement, the basic philosophic question is that something is there rather than nothing being there. But of course, there is an added thing to that. What is there not only is there, but it has a form, and this is the first part of the general revelation. And the second part of the general revelation is what I have coined the term the mannishness of man. The mannishness of man. The distinctiveness, the existence of man as man and man's uniqueness. And we can spell out some things that shows that he is unique. <clears throat> and indeed, uh, this is what I think is involved when we speak of man being made in the image of God. And that is that he has moral motions. Notice I'm not saying emotions. I am saying motions. He has moral motions. He loves. He has the realization of significance. He is creative. And about five or six years ago, Adele came to me with a tremendous force, something I'd never thought about before. And that is the fact that man is unique and that you never find man anywhere in the primitive or the modern or the east or the west that is not creative. And yet, none man, their namely the animals, never are creative in this way. 
And this is a part of being made in the image of God, the great creator who created all things out of nothing by the spoken word. We are created in his image and being created in his image, man also always creates. Of course, the definition of man today scientifically is the verbalizer, that man is unique in using, uh, in verbalizing. And then if we could think of the addition uh, of the deaf psychologist definition which of man, which I also think is valid, and that is man is that which shows fear of non-being. Now all these would fall then under the second classification of general revelation, namely the mannishness of man. Now there these the two general revelation the two general revelations, the universe and its form in the mannishness of man, raise certain questions. They raise certain questions to all thinking people. And we must come and say, as these questions are raised uh, by general revelation, we must come down very clearly at the point of saying it Christianity, Christianity does not give the best answer to the questions that are raised in the area of general revelation. Christianity gives the only answer to the questions that are raised in the area of general revelation, either the universe and its form or the managedness of man. And what we find is that either, either the Christian answer is, there, uh, is true or there is no answer. And for those of you who want to know my thinking more deeply in this, I would urge you to read my book, He is There and He's Not Silent, in which I go into this uh, more deeply. So to the conclusion then at this point would be either the Christian answer or there is no answer. Yet this carries with it a corollary that must be immediately faced. And that is, not only is it true that intellectually it is the Christian answer or there is no answer in the area of general revelation, but something even beyond that, and that is that in these two, ans these two areas of the universe and its form and the managedness of man, no one can live as though there is no answer. Now please notice my steps. There is no other answer, and yet no one can live as though there is no answer. Uh, a few years ago, Goddard made one of the great early philosophic films, and it was Pierre de Fou, Pierre the Crazy. And what he was saying was that we, we live in an absolutely crazy world without rhyme or reason. And in order to demonstrate that we live in a crazy world without rhyme or reason, he had everybody go out through the windows instead of the doors. But it's very profound to notice that he had nobody go out through a solid wall. And that really is profound. It really is. You can say until you're green in the face that we live in a random universe or that there are no answers or that in the rea our reality, the form of the universe is an illusion. But you cannot live as though it is an illusion. But it is not only that we are fenced in by the reality of a universe with form, but also that we are fenced in with the mannishness of man. And not only are there categories in regard to the external world and its form, but there are categories of the human mind that cannot be escaped. And the two men who have dealt most largely with this would be Lévi-Strauss, the French anthropologist, and we would reject most, much of his writing. And yet he is very, very strenuous at this particular point, and accurately so, and that is the fact that all men, no matter how primitive they are, uh, nevertheless think in terms of antithesis. There is a category of the human mind that demands that we think in terms of antithesis. So, Therefore, the very primitive man might not understand the word antithesis, but while he wouldn't understand the word antithesis, yet, nevertheless, he lives very much on the basis of the tribe versus the non-tribe. And I think Levi-Strauss is right in this totally. The other man is Noam Chomsky with his concepts of basic grammar, one of the great um, areas of intellectual thought of our own generation, what has put forth the basic grammar. And that is that there are categories in the human mind that demand solutions in the area of grammar and though the solutions may come forth in various answers, nevertheless, the mind demands solutions in these areas of grammar. So that therefore, in English, we use S for a plural, in the Hebrew, I am. But it's the same, the categories, the human mind are demanding something. And it is set forth in various forms of grammar. In other words, what we're saying here is that it is not only the categories, the external world, that make it impossible for people to live as though there are no answers, even though there is no answer except the Christian answer. And if they deny the Christian answer, they have no answer. But nevertheless, they cannot live this way, not only in the area of the external world, but they cannot live this way in the area of the managedness of man. In regard to the external world, 
I think it is overwhelming, an overwhelming experience to listen to, say, John Cage's music. Now, John Cage, John Cage has the absolute, has the complete philosophy that we live only, that we live only in the world of chance, and therefore you should compose music honestly to what the universe is, and therefore compose music by chance. And he did it first by flipping coins, and then later flipping the uh, yarrow sticks uh, in regard to I Ching, but nevertheless with by chance. And what he has produced always is noise, completely noise. And John Cage himself realizes something of his own dilemma, and he is a mycologist, he's an expert in mushrooms, and he himself has said in his writings that if he tried to pick mushrooms on the basis of his own theory of uh, the universe, there would be no John Cage. <laughs> here we have a dilemma which is very practical and, and basic and a very solid dilemma. But I'd like to move from some of our art museums where people are saying the universe is like this and they show a totally fractured universe and a totally changed universe. Then I like to go out to an airplane sitting on the ramp and look at the Boeing 07. And as I look at the Boeing 707, it is not a chance configuration of bits and pieces. It must be made in a certain way because it has to fit into the flow lines of the universe or it will not fly. And the simple fact is that the universe is not the kind of the universe that the artist and John Cage are trying to picture. And when John Cage picks, picks mushrooms or when he steps into the airplane, he steps into a, a declaration that the universe is not what he says it is. And so consequently, when we come to this, we find that men may say that and try to be consistent and say that there are no answers, and yet, nevertheless, they are in the tension between this and the two points of general revelation, namely the, the uh, universe and its form, the existence of the universe and its form, and the managedness of men. So what we find is that these people may say flatly there are no such things as morals, and yet that all of them have moral motions. I was very struck a few years ago that one of the great thinkers in this area, Anthony Flew, uh, wrote a, uh, had a thing in the BBC Listener. And he had given it over the third program from England first. And it was a brilliant piece, but from his own framework showing that there was no possibility really of value judgments. And as I read it, it was very strong. And I was intrigued when I came to the last short paragraph that he ended by saying, this does not mean that I don't think you should have value. Now here you have man made in the image of God crying out against his own intellectual position. And he's really crying out. And you can find this with all the great men who hold the modern position. We can think of those in the area of determinism, Francis Crick, Freud, B.F. Skinner. <clears throat> Francis Crick, who I think is one of the most dangerous men living today in his concepts of genetic engineering. Uh, he has said, for example, that modern medicine ought to be abolished because it is making the world safe for senility. And uh, he, is, uh, he is a man who is dangerous beyond degree. And he is a total chemical determinist rooted in genetics and the DNA template. And yet it's an interesting thing that in his books he has one, Molecules and Men, and he has another one. And in one of the books, I forget which is which, uh, in one of the books, halfway through the book, he begins to call he begins to call nature she, and in the other one, halfway through the book, he begins to spell nature with a capital N. The simple fact is he has a tension in himself that he cannot live with in spite of his position. We find the same thing with Freud, and some of you have read in my writings this thing of Freud, a Freud son, saying what I personally think is one of the saddest sentences ever been written, and that is that the great Freud, who said love does not exist, but only sex, nevertheless, wrote to his fiance uh, before she came to him and said, little princess, when you come to me, love me irrationally. A sad and profound statement. When we would consider B.F. Skinner, it's exactly the same. He, he acknowledges uh, that he is living in the value system he has inherited from his past, that not, not, in, not that which would be produced by his own concept sociological determinism. And so what we find is then that either the Christian answer is true or that there is no answer in the three great in the three great areas of human thought, and yet people in all these areas of human thought cannot live as though there is no answer, even though their system does not provide an answer. The three great areas of human thought are metaphysics, the area of being, of existence, of morals, and epistemology and that is the subject-object relationship, how we know or how we know we know, 
or if I'm a scientist, how I am sure, uh, or a common man, how I'm sure that what I think I know is in conformity to what is there. Metaphysics, morals, and epistemology. Again, I'd return and say, if any of you are more interested in this than this talk would touch on, again, I would ask you to read my book. He is there, and he's not silent. Now, in the area of epistemology, which is the basic area of uh, human thought and problem, we find that after science changed its position from the uniformity of natural causes in an open system, which is the beginning of modern science with Copernicus and Galileo, all the way down through Newton and Faraday, uh, we, we find that after science has changed the position upon which modern science is built, then what they tried to do was to build upon positivism. Uh, this statement of Alfred North Whitehead, which I keep quoting, and which uh, J. Oppen J. Robert Oppenheimer has also supported, neither of which are Christians, and that is that science, modern science, was born out of the concept of a Christian concept that the universe uh, the universe was made by a reasonable God, and consequently, we can find out something truly about it by reason. That was the epistemological base of early science when they held uniformly natural causes in an open system. Then at a certain point, not because there were any scientific facts that demanded the difference, science moved over to a different set of presuppositions, namely the uniformity of natural causes in a closed system. Now, when they did that, they lost their original epistemological base. There was no place for God. In parenthesis, no place for man either, but no place for God, and so they tried to build on the philosophic basis of positivism. And when I was in university, positivism the thing was the thing which held the field. Uh, but positivism has been destroyed, and the man who destroyed it more thoroughly than anybody else was Michael Polanyi, um, the dear man, surely, getting old now. You might pray for him that he might go further in his thinking. But Michael Polanyi very carefully and very thoroughly destroyed the possibility of positivism. But now notice when he could destroy positivism, he could destroy this naive philosophy that the subject-object is just there and you know the object when, uh, the subject, but, uh, and that's all, and it's not uh, it's a too simplistic in a way statement of positivism, and yet it's the basis of it. Uh, when he destroyed that, you must see that though he could destroy it, Michael Polanyi was left with no certain base of knowing. And modern science is in a very, very peculiar position, and that is it has no philosophic base for any sense of objectivity. And I'm just saying, in parenthesis, I'm convinced that science is ceasing to be objective uh, and becoming mere technology on one hand, and on the other hand, uh, becoming, uh, becoming a sociological science simply because they have no intellectual base uh, now for objectivity. Uh, so what we find then is to repeat that it is not, not that Christianity is the best answer, it's the only answer, and to reject the Christian answer is to be left with no answer, and yet no one can live in relationship to himself or the universe in the area of non-answer. And really, I feel, this is crucial to say. Christianity is the only answer, or there is no answer, and yet nobody can live on the basis of the fact that there is no answer. Therefore, I would regard to say, in regard to the question of intellectual sufficiency, uh, intellectual sufficiency, and even the word proof, that what we find is that not only that there's not only an urgent philosophic need, but an urgent and insistent philosophic demand that Christianity is true. More than that, more than that, there is a philosophic requirement, a philosophic requirement, a philosophic exigency that Christianity is true. And true truth becomes intellectually the inescapable answer, is what I would say, in conclusion to my first part. And now let us come at it from the other side, and that is from the biblical side. When I turn to the Bible, what I find is that the Bible gives answers concerning the universe and man. And when we read the Bible as it is written in contrast to the way the liberal theologian or the neo-orthodox theologian or even the so-called evangelical theologian today who's playing games with the first half of Genesis, when we read the Bible in reference to the way it is written rather than the way these men read it, we find that it not only claims to give the answers concerning the universe and the universe and its form and man and his mannishness, but it does give the answers concerning the problem of metaphysics, morals, and epistemology. The Bible claims to be telling us the truth, 
not only about God and religious things and what I would call my upper story, but the Bible claims is to give what I call true truth, objective truth, true truth where it speaks of the cosmos and where it speaks of history as well as where it speaks of, quote, religious things. Now to me here is the arch of, uh, of intellectual, uh, intellectual uh, sufficiency. And that is the fact that on one side, in one side, in general revelation, there is a philosophic demand, and no, it's the Christian answer or no answer, and yet nobody can live in the answer of no answer, and so therefore the universe in its form and the mannishness of man keeps screaming at people as they try to live in the answer uh, area of no answer or the wrong answers. And on the other side, the Bible claims to give the answers concerning these things, and not just quote-unquote religious truth, and read as it is written, it does give the answer to these things. And to me, this forms the arch of intellectual, intellectual sufficiency. The philosophic requirement plus the fact that the Bible gives the answer and in reverse, the Christian answer is the only answer. And if we do not accept the Christian answer, what we have is that we are left with cynicism. Um, we can think of Nietzsche ending at the end of his life and being the first modern man to say in the modern way, God is dead, and then at the end of his life coming to Switzerland and going insane, and I'm convinced it is not because he had a, a venereal disease that he went insane, although he did have a venereal disease, but I'm convinced his insanity was a philosophic statement, that once you say God is dead, then he was bright enough to understand that then everything for which God gives an answer is dead, and the only answer is total cynicism and really insanity. Here we find we are left with this kind of total cynicism if we reject the Christian answer. That we are left with this kind of cynicism, and yet no one can live with either the universe or himself on the basis of cynicism. Christianity answers the questions intellectually, and we can live with it in practice, and that's an important another step. Not only does it give theoretical answers, but living on the Christian basis in reference to the universe and its form and the managedness of man. We not only have an abstract intellectual statement, but also at the same time, uh, we can live with it in our day-by-day -day life in contrast, let us say, to John Cage and his mushrooms. And this with the fact that there is no other answer <clears throat> means that there is good and sufficient reason to know that Christianity gives the truth of the universe and the truth of man. However, you know, I would come, all that was on the side of the intellectual. But the topic, of course, had a twofold part, the intellectual and faith. And however, when we turn to the Bible, we find something else. And that is, that is, that beginning from Adam on, God has shown in the scripture that God wants us to believe him. He wants a personal relationship with him in which we believe him. And that was all the way back to Genesis. It's constantly through the scripture. He is calling us upon us to believe him. Notice here a very careful distinction because it is often not made in evangelical circles. And that is, I am not saying that we are to believe about him. I am saying that he has shown from the beginning of his statements to Adam that he wants us to believe him, to believe what he has spoken. Often an evangelical belief begins with the statement, believe in Christ. But there is always something, if that is to be a meaningful statement, especially in the 20th century world, there is always something back of believing in Christ. And what is back of believing in Christ is that we must believe God. And there is a tremendous distinction between believing in God and believing God. And the first step is believing God. And that is the thing to write large in a generation like our own. Now, from the beginning of Genesis onward, God shows that he wants us to have this personal relationship within him, with him on the basis of believing him. Thus, as we consider the intellectual certainty, the intellectual certainty and sufficiency, I believe, is there. The intellectual certainty and the intellectual sufficiency is there. But, and the but is a tremendous resounding but, but though the intellectual certainty is there and sufficiency is there, Either we believe what God has said to us, or we do not believe him in spite of the fact of the intellectual sufficiency. Either we do one or the other. It's not that the intellectual sufficiency is not there, but we either believe him or we don't believe him, 
in spite, if we don't believe him, it's in spite of the intellectual sufficiency. The Bible's concept of faith is not a leap of faith. There is no concept of a leap of faith in the scripture. It just doesn't exist. Kierkegaardianism is wrong. There is no leap of faith in the scripture, but we all call, we are called upon to believe God. Now let's look at two areas of illustration of, of what I mean. Let us come to justification. That is, that time when a person accepts Christ as a savior by the grace of God, and God judicially, as the judge of the universe, declares forensically that the man's true moral guilt is gone when he accepts Christ as a savior, when he becomes a Christian. Now we must see that to become a Christian, though most men do not analyze it in reality, and especially for a man who thinks these things through intellectually and analyzes it, what we must see is that to become a Christian, in reality, we bow three times, even if we do not so analyze it. Now most men do not think of the third bowing at all, and most people don't very consciously think of the second bowing, but nevertheless there are the three bows. And the first bow is in the area of metaphysics. This came to me very clearly the night I was having my discussion with Bishop Pike out in Chicago a few years ago, uh, and there were 2,000 there in the horrible, blowy winter night in Chicago, uh, and as I was talking, suddenly somebody called, or Pike was talking, and somebody called out from the audience and said, we'd like to hear Dr. Pike tell what it means to become a Christian. And poor Jim Pike, as you could guess, messed it up. He hadn't a clue, really, not a clue. It was sad, really. I felt there and felt very sad for the man. And so the, somebody else cried out and said, we'd like to hear what Dr. Schaefer has to say a Christian is. And uh, the moderator did something he shouldn't have done because it was Pike's turn, but he asked him, I think he was interested by this time, though he was a non-Christian, he said, will you tell us? And so I prayed very, very rapidly and said, Lord, will you let me say something so that, so that this group can really understand and Pike will understand? And I felt I had the answer, and I said at that time, a Christian is a person who bows twice. And the first bow is a metaphysical bow, even though we might not analyze it as a, as a uh, metaphysical bow. And people aren't saved unless they bow, first of all, metaphysically. Now, as we turn, remember metaphysics deals with the question of existence. And I pointed out that reading the Bible as it's written, the Bible does give us intellectually the, the answer we need of a personal beginning of the creation of the universe. Intellectually, it gives the sufficient answer. And the only answer, I think, to Jean-Paul Sartre's basic philosophic question is that something is there. So intellectually, we have the answer that Christianity gives, the beginning by a personal God creating everything out of nothing. And we, we have the sufficient answer. But notice, if I am going to be a Christian, it is not only necessary to know that abstractly there is the intellectual answer, but also I must believe God personally and individually and bow and acknowledge that I am not autonomous and acknowledge that I am not a product of chance. It is not enough to see the abstract intellectual answer. I must believe God and I must bow and accept the fact that I am not the autonomous man. So there are the two, there are the two factors. There is the factor indeed of understanding there is the intellectual sufficiency, but that is not enough to say. The same thing is exactly true in the area of morals. Uh, our generation is cursed with the thing of having no values. I've just come from Washington and talked to in high places in government, many reporters, many men in military planning in Washington, and they are all find themselves plagued at the point of the fact of realizing that they have come to the place where they have no sufficient value system. And of course, I think this is natural, it is right. It is the thing that would be the thing that somebody as brilliant as Leonardo da Vinci saw at the end of the Renaissance, that man's humanism beginning from himself autonomous was not going to turn out right. And our generation has come to its conclusion. The modern man is not finding any place for moral values. So what we can see is that we need a, a, an absolute, and we can see that Plato's concept of an abstract, sort of an abstract ideal is not enough, but we can see that if the personal God is there and he has a character, and his character is the law of the universe, then we have that which we so desperately need in our generation, and that is a set of real moral values. But, and the but is overwhelming, seeing that is enough, not enough to save. It is not enough to save. We cannot accept the Christian moral values merely as a utilitarian reason because society needs it. This is not enough to save us individually. 
If I'm going to be saved individually, I must believe God as I come to the scripture and see that the Bible says that I am the sinner, that I have true moral guilt, that I have deliberately sinned, that I have broken the moral absolutes which are fixed in the character of God and which do not stand back of God, but which are in God himself and which he has revealed in the scripture, that I have broken these things. And I must believe God personally at this point in the promises he has given us in the scripture and through Jesus Christ. And believing this, I must accept Christ as my own savior in his substitutionary propitiatory death. So in the case of justification, in the area of metaphysics, and in the area of morals both, the, there is an intellectual sufficiency, but the intellectual sufficiency does not save. I must bow personally and believe God at this particular place. There's the intellect and there is the faith, and here this is necessary to be a Christian. The question of epistemology, the subject-object relationship, is rooted intellectually, as I've stressed, and he is there and he's not silent. The answer for this, as I tried to say in that book, that the Christian has no epistemological problem. And the reason he has no epistemological problem is the believing that the universe has been created by the God, uh, by the God of the Bible. We are not surprised then that we are put in a subject-object relationship in the universe in which we live. But I don't want to get bogged down in that. It would be a cul-de-sac. So I'll just mention it on the way point, on the way past. So what we find then in the area of justification, there is the intellectual sufficiency, but at the same time, we must believe God. There must be faith <clears throat> if indeed I am to become a Christian. There is an, an adequate intellectual certainty, but we must bow and believe God, or we are not Christians. Now, this is exactly as I see it, what Paul is arguing in Romans 1, 18 through 20, where he talks of the internal, <coughs> internal things, which I believe is parallel to that which I'm talking about, about the mansions of man, and he talks about the external universe, which is what I'm talking about, and the universe in its form, and then he goes on and he says that these speaking out so clearly, if I am not going to accept the Christian answer, it is only on the basis, and then the modern translations say, suppress the truth, but certain people who know a lot more Greek than I know tell me that it really is the better translation to hold what the King James says, and that is to hold the truth in unrighteousness. How do men hold the truth in unrighteousness? In the light of the universe and its form and the managedness of man, everybody has to live in the light of the existence of the universe in its form and live in the light of the managedness of man, and they live in it up to the level in which they are forced to live in it, and then they refuse to carry to its logical conclusion and its proper conclusions, and as such, they hold the truth in unrighteousness. And when they stand before the great judgment seat of God, it will be understood that they held the truth in unrighteousness in that they had to live in the universe as it is, and they had to live in the managedness of man, and yet nevertheless they held the truth up to a certain level in unrighteousness because they did not carry it on. And I think exactly the same thing is emphasized in John 20 and 30 and 31, where John gives us the reason why he wrote the Gospel of John. And there we read, and many other, and I would say that the right translation for the 20th century mind is not the word, not the word signs, but space-time proof. And many other space-time proofs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. What has he said? He has said that there is enough laid down in the scripture in the Gospel of John to show that Jesus is the Old Testament prophesied Messiah. More than that, he is the Son of God. There is enough laid down in order to have this, but we're called to go on to the next step, and that believing he might have life in his name. The intellectual sufficiency is there, and the Bible says it is there, but on the other hand, this does not make me a Christian. In the area of justification, there must not only be the intellectual sufficiency, there must be the believing God as he has spoken in his word and my bowing before him. Now I would use a second illustration of what I mean, and that is after I become a Christian in the area of the problem of the dilemmas of life. And this has been a very important thing to me. It's not theoretical. I've been wrestling with it uh, for some time because I spent so much of my own life in the area, in the intellectual area, and the problem then of reality. 
in the midst of theological studies, but also the kind of intellectual uh, pursuits that my life is largely made up of. And that is the question, after I am a Christian, in the area of the dilemmas of life, the problems of life. Now, as we look about, we face the fact that we live in a cause and effect universe. Yet we believe, indeed, in an open universe. That there is a cause and effect universe, and yet God can and does act into that universe. Now, on the basis of the dilemmas of life and the problems of life and the sorrows of life for myself, my family, uh, the hundreds and hundreds of people I deal with from all over the world in the problems of their problems, how am I going to face this? How am, what, how, what's going to be the structure in which I think? And, uh, and uh, emotionally, how do I face the problems of life? And I would say that there are two dangers in the light of the fact that we believe in a cause and effect universe, and yet God can and does act into that universe. And the first danger I would label a Christian humanism. A Christian humanism. And that is that in this, really though, in theory, I say that God can and does act in the midst of the cause and effect universe, yet existentially I have no place for his acting in the midst of the cause and effect universe and the hard things of life. That uh, rather, I just attribute it, attribute it to the fallenness of the world. And so each thing that comes, I say, well, after all, you have to live in a fall. You have to realize we live in a fallen world. Living in a fallen world, the whole world is abnormal. And the hard things of life, well, this is where we rested. But the danger is that as soon as I do this, all I am left with is, is, a, uh, is a Christian humanism. I am left in a place in which I have certain attitudes toward people that are different, but experientially in the midst of the problems of life for myself and for other people, really it is only a Christian humanism, even though it may be framed in the most orthodox theology. And I think an awful lot of people live there. An awful lot of people live there. In reality, we may be as orthodox as orthodox. We may have a straight intellectual comprehension of what the Bible teaches, and yet, nevertheless, experientially, we are living in a Christian humanism. We say God can and does act into the open universe, and yet, in reality, we live as though he never does. But there is the opposite answer, which is the direction that perhaps more Christians go in, and that is that, that, uh, that God does everything. That God does everything. And as soon as I say that God does everything, then this carries with it two results. First of all, it carries with it the fact that the real universe disappears. The real universe disappears. The cause and effectness of the universe disappears if God does everything at individually at every given point. But there is a second area, and that is in the hard things of life. I, if I say that these all come directly from the hand of God, if this is true, uh, then we must understand if I'm saying if this is my not only my my thought form but my emotional reaction then if I say this then as I am faced with the hard things of life and particularly the hard things of life in the part of my loved ones and the people who come to me and I love and I have empathy with and they stand often so totally destroyed as I do this there is the danger of blaming God in anger and being filled with frustration and also there is the danger of having no place, nothing in my, in my thinking, wherein I can stand against evil and I can fight and I can hate evil in this world. So there's the double danger of Christian humanism on one side or the universe disappearing and having no place really for fighting and hating evil. And I'm thinking such things as sociological evil in the world. Uh, this has been a direction of a certain form of that which has been named as Christian spirituality. We can think of Madame Guillon. I don't know anymore if the women read Madame Guillon in America, but a certain number of years ago when I was here, a great section of people, uh, of women, uh, took Madame Guillon as their standard of Christian spirituality. And of course, for those of us who know a bit more, we understand that Fenelay, the French writer Fenelay, stands behind Madame Guillon. And when we read Fenelay, what we find is that spirituality becomes to Fenelay merely accepting everything that comes. It rests in the French word, I accept. I accept. And as everything comes to me in life, no matter what it is, I am like a cow with a branch flowing down across the back who merely stands and moves. That is all. 
And with a mass of people, this becomes Christian spirituality. But it is not the picture painted in the forgiven to us in the Bible. And the great contrast comes at the point of Jesus standing in front of the tomb of Lazarus. And this is very important to me. One of the old Princeton writers worked this out very carefully in a book put out by Princeton Seminary in the old days, and it's been an important, crucial point in my own life. The emphasis of the fact that as Jesus stood in front of the tomb of Lazarus, he had two emotions, and not just one, as the, uh, as the, King, as the King James translation would give us, but the Greek makes very plain that he had two emotions, that he wept and he was angry, and he who said he was God could be angry at the abnormality that was before him without being angry at himself. And the whole world changed. There are things that are in the abnormal world wherein Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself, could be angry, standing before the abnormality of death. And this stands as a great cry in contrast to Camus' La Peste, wherein the pest of the plague, I think he translated the plague in English, in the plague, he says that when the rats brought the plague into Oran, you had to make a choice, and that is either you had to join with a priest and not fight God, and if you did, you couldn't fight the plague, or you joined with the doctor and you fought the plague, but then you were fighting God, and he never solved it, and this was his basic, solve, basic problem. But there's no problem according to the Bible. There is an abnormality that has become in the world and the cause and effect flow of things because of sin, and Jesus Christ could be angry, though he is God, without being angry at himself. Now here again, then, we are called, as I see it, this time as Christians, existentially to believe God. We're to have the attitude of David, and I'm convinced that one of the reasons the Christians love to read David down through the centuries, they have loved to read the Psalms is if you read David, you find that this is his intellectual, his spiritual, and his psychological set of his mind, of David's mind, that he is in the midst of trouble, and he's surrounded by trouble, and the trouble is not explained away, and the trouble is not called less than terrible trouble, whether it's in the area of his own life of sin, or whether it, uh, whether it is in the area of his enemies round about, or sickness or something else. And yet suddenly, halfway through a psalm, you'll suddenly feel a difference within yourself in what you're reading. And you find that the difference rests upon the fact that, G that David is saying, Oh God, I believe you. Oh God, I believe you in your promises. I believe you now in the midst of the troubles of life. And this is the set of David's mind over and over again. And so we find that we are faced with the troubles of life. We must acknowledge that we cannot always acknowledge exactly where the troubles come from. But as I read the scripture intellectually, I have a structure, and I see that the troubles of life come from three sources, as I read in the Bible. In the first place, the cause and effect universe has been spoiled. Everything under the dominion of man was spoiled when man revolted against God. And therefore, therefore, I live in a spoiled cause and effect universe. And I like to use the word sludge. It is my personal word. And sludge is a marvelous word here. And sludge is the stuff that's at the bottom of a motorboat when you raise the boards and look underneath. That's sludge. And there's nothing so horrible in the world, maybe, in this area as sludge. And it seems to me there is a sludge of the fall. A sludge of the fall that falls out differently to different people and then falls out differently to the same person at different times in their life. And the sludge of the fall, the abnormality of the world, falls in the area of the physical, the psychological, the intellectual, and the moral. The sludge of the fall falls in the areas of the psychological, the physical, of the intellectual, and the moral. So this is one of the results of the troubles of luck. It is one of the, re one of the causes, pardon me one of the causes of the troubles of life. But we must also say there is a second one made plain in Bible, in the Bible, say in Hebrews 12, 11, and that is part of the troubles of life come because of God's chastisement. And that section, Hebrews 12, 11, is a very beautiful section to me. What it says is God brings chastisement in his children's lives in order to bring forth the peaceable fruit of righteousness in our lives. I think often we read it wrongly, as though it just said he brings chastisement in our lives in order to bring forth righteousness in our lives 
But if this is the way we read it, we miss the force of what is being said and the beauty and the tenderness of what is involved. He lets hard things come into my life in order to bring forth the peaceable fruit of righteousness in my life, the coming to him and bringing it under the blood of Christ that I may have peace and peace with him. And so the second area of the source of the troubles of life fall in, falls in the area of chastisement. But there is a third area, according to the Bible, of the cause of the troubles of life and the hard things of life. And that is the fact that we share, we share in a cause and effect relationship with the unseen world. And this is the message of Job. Job did not know that he was sharing in a cause and effect relationship with the unseen world, but he was at the time in which he was, uh, which he was living. Suddenly he knew, all he knew, that the world fell in upon his head as it were. But we know that he was sharing in the battles in the heavens. And the New Testament of Ephesians and other places makes plain that we as Christians share in the battle of the heavens. And for Job, Job was living in the midst of the fullness of the existential historic reality of his own moment. And that is the interplay between the seen and the unseen world. And I'm convinced that no one has ever been able to write a sufficient philosophy of history because they're trying to write a philosophy of history at only the point of the seen world. And one cannot understand any given moment of history unless one knows the interplay between the seen and the unseen world. And these two together constitute reality at that given moment. So there are these three sources, according to the Bible, of the troubles of life. And let us say that we cannot always keep clear exactly from which of these three sources the trouble is coming at the given moment. I have just gone through a difficult thing. There's two, two very people dear to us, one in one, a dear elder, one of our leading elders in our little church, the International Church Presbyterian Reformé in Ealing, has just died of cancer if he was only married a year. <clears throat> and then a dear friend in Fort Lauderdale has died with cancer and left little children. And, and here you are in the you are faced with these pr very practical troubles of life. And if you're a person of some sensitivity, you cannot pass it on or off. It has emotional repercussions, not only for the people you're working with, but for yourself. And we must say that we can't, at every given moment, always be clear uh, from which of these three sources the trouble is coming. Uh, we, sometimes we can be clear that it's chastisement, and then we know what to do is to come and bring that specific sin under the blood of Christ. And on claiming the blood of Christ, that that specific sin would be cared for. But we often cannot know. What do I do in my own life when the hard things of life come? What do I do when the hard things of life come and the people that I have empathy with and for whom I am the pastor, these hundreds of people over the world who write to me all the time, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do in my own life when these troubles come? Well, there's only one thing to do, and that is not fall into either of the two mistakes uh, that I pointed out as possible at this point, but rather to do what David did, and that is, at that particular moment, is to believe God, and to believe the promises of God. It is not that there is not an intellectual sufficiency. The Christian framework can be wrestled with intellectually, and I can understand these things intellectually, and they provide a framework wherein I'm not confused, and I'm not lost in Camus' awful dilemma. But what will matter at any given moment is not whether I have the intellectual framework, but whether at that particular moment I am believing God and believing God's promises. In the area of justification, but in the area of the living in the midst of the hard things of a fallen world, in both cases there is to be reason, but there is not to be a discontinuity with the reason, and this is the life of faith. And in Hebrews 11, this great list of heroes of the, of the faith, who were these men? Were they men who operated in a leap in the dark? Not at all. They had a sufficient knowledge by communication from God. But the heroes of faith was not just that they had a sufficient communication from God and a framework to work in, but at their given moment, they acted in this and believed the promises of God. And the three young men at the fiery furnace teaches us a lesson we must never forget. Oh, King, God can deliver us. And if he, he, if he will, he will deliver us. But if he does not deliver us, we will not bow. In other words, they're saying, oh, God, we still believe him and his promise. And that's what the life of faith means at any given existential moment. 
Now then, as we live this way, with the reason, the intellectual, and yet in and out in a discontinuity, with believing the specific promises of God revealed in the scripture and revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, when we do this in the midst of the hard things of life, certain things result. God is praised in the seen world, but God is praised, says the Bible, in the unseen world. My significance at that given moment is not shut up merely to between life and death. There is a horizontal continuity after death in which my believing God has meaning. But not only at the time of death or at the second coming of Christ is there a horizontal communication, a continuity, but at the present moment there is a cause and effect relationship. And often the thing at the moment has far greater significance than I understand because somehow or other it has importance in the battle in the heavenly. It also internally means that this is a place of peace. This is a place of an unbroken relationship with God at that moment. Romans 15, 13 says, Now the God of hope fill you with joy and peace. Believe it. Believe it. Not believing is a leap, but believing God at that given moment is the secret of living in peace in the midst of a wounded world. And if you don't understand what I'm talking about, you're totally insensitive because this is a terribly wounded world. And if you're going to help anybody, you must understand it isn't only you that's going to get sick, but we live with sickness and we live with all kinds of things. We live in a horribly wounded world. We live in a horribly wounded world. This thing became a very great question to me in uh, some months that passed by, and as I always do, the way I develop my thinking, I take several months to think problems through, and Edith and I were hiking uh, a couple months ago between Stad and Sonnen down through the rain one day, rain just about the way it is now, but we wanted to hike nevertheless, and we were coming down towards Sonnen, and the thing fell into place. And I saw, indeed, something of the interrelationship a bit clearer than I have ever seen it and felt it before between the intellectual and faith. And coming down over the mountainside, and my wife is used to me, I must say, so nothing I do surprises her. Uh, but as I was coming down, this became very, very real to me, and I made up a little song. A little song, a very simple little song, and it sang coming down through the rain, I believe you, I believe you, I believe you now. It is not that there is a discontinuity between the reason and faith. There is an adequate, adequate intellectual certainty of the things of the faith shouted at us from the universe in its form and man and its mannishness. But what will matter for my justification at a certain point of history or what will matter in my Christian life as I live it after my justification is the intellectual certainty indeed but not standing in, in, in a discontinuity but a continuity with believing God at the given moment. Now when I come to a certain place in my life and I bump my nose and many of us come to this place somewhere in our Christian life where we bump our nose either intellectually, psychologically, or through sin, and I find myself shaken in my Christian life, then on the basis of the things we have considered, the whole man can go back and think through again the arch of the intellectual sufficiency, the philosophic demand, and the fact that the Bible claims to be the answer, and it does give the answer, and there is no other answer. We can go back when we bump our nose intellectually and think these things through again. And at that point, the whole man can then begin again with no discontinuity between the reason and the much more. We have a solid, solid floor under our feet to begin again. And some of you young people are going to come to those places, and happily you can go back and stand in that place and again have a solid floor under your feet. Now in conclusion, let us notice what happens if we don't have either of these two sides. In the first place, if, without, if we do not have the cognitive, the intellectual, the whole thing hang, hangs in midair, and it is only a matter of experience. And we can easily come to the place where we do not know what the experience means. Many of the people who are today rooting themselves in experiential, experiential things, suddenly they turn around and the whole thing looks strange, and I find that they do not know what the experience means. And the reason they do not know what the experience means is that it can be all kinds of extraordinary manifestations and things. And suddenly it, it falls out of place. There is no framework for it. They do not know what it means, and it simply blows away. We have hundreds of people who have gone through this in the last few years who have come to us, who have come out of the uh, drug trip, 
through the Eastern religious trip into the Jesus trip and the experiential and only the experiential and it is blown away. Or we can say it another way, and that is without the intellectual, we tend to heap everything in our on our devotional life. And as troubles come to us and uncertainties of our Christian life, we tend to turn around to our poor devotional life and heap everything on our devotional life, heap everything on our devotional life like a poor little donkey that isn't meant to, build, to carry such a load, and yet we heap so much on our devotional life that like the little donkey, it simply lies dead. It finally breaks. It finally breaks down. Under the load, it was never meant to carry. Remember first John. How are you going to know if the spirit who comes to you is spirit from God? It is not because of some quote-unquote devotional, quote-unquote some spiritual bang. It is because the spirit brings to you that with which the reason can deal. There is no other way. There is no other way. And God doesn't mean our devotional life to carry all the weight when troubles come to me, whether they're intellectual, psychological, or moral. It is, he doesn't mean it to bear the whole weight. There is a sufficient intellectual uh, uh, certainty uh, that we have, a sufficiency would be a better word, that we have that is to bear, bear its own share of the weight. 